Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation. We're actually going to be talking with Dr. Daniel Kaufman. He is a licensed mental health counselor in the state of Florida, as well as an internationally certified gambling counselor. He received his doctorate in counselor education and supervision from Barry University and his master's degree from Asbury Theological Seminary. His doctoral research explored the integration of personality theory with real-world and virtual-world decision-making among massive multiplayer online uh, role-playing games. I knew I'd get that if I thought hard enough. In addition, he's a qualified supervisor in the state of Florida and is in the process of converting his licensure over to Arizona and... He currently also teaches as a professor at Grand Canyon University. So welcome, Dr. Kaufman. And there are also a couple other things when we talked um, about uh, that didn't make it into your, into your bio. You were, were or are um, affiliated with the uh, Gambling um, Council in Florida. Yes, the Florida Council on Compulsive Gambling operates the helpline that people in a gambling crisis situation will call in order to find out about their support group meetings available in their area, get workbooks or other literature, and also find a mental health counselor that also specializes specifically in treating gambling addiction that they can work with in person or through telehealth. So that's awesome. So you really have your, your, your fingers in the pie of gambling and technology addictions, which is great. I've taught a couple of classes on it, but I don't have near the depth or breadth of knowledge that you do. So we'll just kind of kick it off and we'll see where we go from here. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to share with the listeners is what is the extent of the issue with, and I'm going to use the term just broadly, technology-based addictive behaviors, because the numbers seem to be all over the place. Well, it's really hard to get good numbers on that very question. So when you think about the way technology can be a useful tool, I'm sure all of us have used some kind of device connected online to complete some kind of task today. And if it's a work day, then maybe that's a professional task. But if you're at home and listening to this podcast and it's a day off or you've concluded your work for the day, then you know maybe you played a casual smartphone game or maybe you've been on Facebook for a little bit. And so we use technology to facilitate some level of efficiency no matter what the task is these days. And so for some people, they're not able to draw the line and compartmentalize between what am I supposed to be doing, the ought self supposed to be completing right this moment. And before you know it, a a huge portion of the day is gone. So when you look at technology, it's not just did you use technology today, because that doesn't essentially tell us anything, that it's a deeper question than that. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that we had talked about uh, prior to this was a technique you use with your students in order to help them develop empathy, because they've probably never used crack cocaine or something, but in order to help them understand the compulsive nature of, of addiction. And you had um, talked with them about 
you know, had they gone home and been online playing video games or doing something else when they should have been, for example, studying. You want to share a little bit about that? Right. So developing empathy with addictions can be pretty tough if your entire addiction course, as you alluded to, is about alcoholism and maybe your relationship with alcohol. You view it as pretty healthy and you're a master's student and you're not failing out and there might be some alcohol there, but it feels healthy. So you're reading about somebody else and somebody else's problem and they're just irresponsible and they became an addict to alcohol. And then other drugs that are viewed as illegal or maybe presenting um, a higher degree of issue. I can't envision myself using heroin or methamphetamine. So again, that's another person's problem. So when you look at as a faculty an assignment that's coming up due and classes maybe two nights before that's done and you ask how many people have submitted it already and you see less than 10% of your classroom raise their hand. And then, okay, fair enough, it's due in two days. So how many of you are where you should be for two days ahead of a deadline? And then you see maybe 40% raise their hand. And then, okay, still not 50%. And then you just keep asking until you get to the point where you realize the majority of people are planning to do this assignment at the very end of the final night and hopefully submit it to an electronic learning system that will put a timestamp on it, hopefully before midnight. So then you talk about why is that going to happen? What's going on in your evenings? And technology often plays a role that either watching videos or these, game, uh, these days game streamers could be a, um, something that steals a handful of hours on the night where something's due. And so maybe there's a little bit of a rush or a gamble in play too, that I can get this done before midnight, so I start now. And when I talk about what happens if your phone is the thing that I'm asking you to give up just for the next few nights until you turn in the assignment. And so instead of instant gratification, it's an earned gratification. And a lot of times that generates an interesting discussion with the students because we're not in a world either that forces us to earn a lot of the gratifying activity we use to absorb our time with. We can have it whenever we want and in whatever order. And, and so that kind of brings us full circle. When we talk about technology-based addictive behaviors, we're talking about everything from Candy Crush to um, role-playing games to things. My, my son plays, plays video games a lot, and, um, but yeah. also online gambling and even um, pornography. There's a lot of things on computers, a lot of things that you can access, and they're available literally at your fingertips whenever you want, and they can provide um, that combination of dopamine and endorphins, so it's rewarding, and you really want to go pursue that even more, so looking at, at those sorts of things, and, and looking at youth, and I've got two teenagers right now, and, and envisioning or thinking about, you know, what would their life be like if you took their mobile device from them? Because it's literally part of who they are. I mean, they walk around and it's, you know, attached to them. And, you know, we had, have talked some about where do we draw the line between problematic use? Yes, my daughter walks around with her cell phone kind of chained to her, but she's also graduating high school at 16 and a black belt in um, Taekwondo. So I'm not concerned about it progressing at this point. It hasn't progressed to problematic use. Could it? Sure, it could for anybody. Um, so how do we draw that line between regular socialization or decompressing after a long day by surfing Facebook versus problematic use and where we would start calling it addiction? Yeah, so it has to do with a few things. The first one and the simplest one is, are there consequences to utilizing the object this way, the, the technology object? So if you have something that deserves your time and your focus right now, and it doesn't have to just be a work or a school deadline, those are good deadlines because there is a measurable consequence to not doing them. 
But a consequence could also be it's dinner time and everyone is sitting looking at their phone instead of having that opportunity for a relational connection to occur. And if you go out to eat after listening to this podcast, just scan the restaurant, right? You're going to see a few tables, unfortunately, where nobody is sitting at that table together psychologically, uh, that they're in Facebook land or they're doing uh, Instagram or whatever it is, or some people might be checking emails or texting other people who did not choose this evening to spend time physically around you. So it's not that sending a text message in the middle of dinner is should be a taboo. It's more that if this is a dominant pattern of behavior, reliable and frequently observed to where people are asking you to keep it in your pocket or leave it in the car or uh, just please uh, give me your attention, I miss you, then that's one consequence that people might not observe as readily. And the other is preoccupation is if you are mentally more scheming when you're going to check something or you heard your phone or felt your phone vibrate. And so now your whole attention is shifted and you're not present. Then that could be another way. And preoccupation is a big telling factor of other process addictions as well, because it's not just about in the moment doing the thing that is the core of the addiction. It's also about the psychological energy being invested in the process of when that will happen moving forward. And one of the criteria for addiction is do you spend excessive amounts of time or more time than you intended planning, using, or recovering from use of that substance or behavior. So certainly. Um, So we've identified, started helping people identify where that line might be for a problem. Now, a lot of people use addictive behaviors in order to uh, feel better because they're um, depressed, they're anxious, they're, you know, fill in the blank. What is the frequency of co-occurring issues like other substances you know, maybe using alcohol with gambling or or mood disorders with technology-based behaviors? Well, one of the biggest indicators of whether something based in technology will become an addictive issue is the degree of escape or mood modification that's being observed. Mm -hmm. And certainly, if that activity is pairing with substances, either alcohol or cannabis use or some something else to increase or elevate the amount of movement in that mood state, then what you're doing is you're multiplying the potential for developing comorbid or co-occurring mental health concerns, whether it's depression or now you're very anxious because under your own devices, <laughs> devices, uh, <laughs> You, you don't know how to manage an, anxiety, uh, an anxiety-provoking situation anymore. And so it is okay to have coping skills, and it's even okay to feel better when you do certain activities on your device. But I think that it's getting to the point, especially in our field, where we, we train our students and our supervisees to have coping skills that they can teach to their clients. And clients should come out of therapy understanding coping skills. But there's also something to be said about the situations that you are electing to be in or that are a continuing part of your circumstance. And if you know that you will have a trying time every time you walk into that situation where your coping skills might not be enough, then I would start advocating with my client or student that that might not be the best situation for you and that something is at odds with your core being there, Mm -hmm. that we should know how to cope and get through a certain amount of difficulty. But also our situation should be working for us. And over time, if we are developing these coping skills and these abilities so that we have that confidence to move into situation to situation, you would hope that 
you aren't having to be on defense and use coping skills just to survive that situation. And so a little bit more more of a mindfulness approach can help to counter the reliance on, you know, how do I use this substance to get through that tough day? Or how do I use this device to ignore all of the difficult, complex stimuli that I could be noticing right now? Right. So Taking it back to the example of alcohol, which, you know, people are, are familiar with, if you have to have several drinks after work, and I use the term have to kind of loosely, several of drinks after work every day in order to decompress because your day was so miserable, and this is an ongoing pattern, it's kind of a wake-up call that maybe something needs to change at work, or yeah. you need to learn some other coping skills, and some people... Um, instead of drinking, will come home and they'll watch porn or they'll gamble or they will um, get on some sort of video game or whatever. So the technology aspect, the techno- technological behaviors can replace what, you know, back in the 80s before the internet existed, um, substances did. Yeah. So some people can engage in that. And as we were talking um, Earlier, a lot of clinicians get hung up on diagnosing you've got an addictive disorder here or pathological gambling here, and did the anxiety come before that or is it a result of gambling, you know, if if we're using gambling, is it a result of gambling? And one of the things that I've always argued is that it doesn't matter. The person has anxiety right now and whether it came before which caused the gambling or the gambling caused the anxiety it doesn't matter and if we treat the gambling disorder but don't treat the anxiety then we're going to have somebody who's drop back their their drop back and punt maybe to go back to gambling if we treat the um anxiety And just assume that when the anxiety goes away, the person won't need to gamble anymore. We're also fooling ourselves because the gambling does alter the gambling behavior and the um, uh, tension and release. You can speak more eloquently on this. Does alter the neurochemicals in the brain. So you're flooding the brain with dopamine and, and causing brain changes similar to what you would with other addictions. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're comparing a process addiction, like the ones we see with different technologies, and then you compare it with a substance-based addiction response in the brain, the substance-based response may flood those pathways with far more intensities of those chemicals, but the mechanism matches what you see in a process addiction. So what's the difference? Well, the brain works based on chemicals flowing through it, just like the rest of your body. So when a chemical is the impetus for that shift, you get greater access to modifying the entire system. So you get more dopamine. But over time, with a process addiction, you train your brain that that is the number one impetus for releasing dopamine. And so the same pathways open up because you're having fun, you're enjoying it, or you're getting that rush. And, you know, maybe the chemicals linger in the, in the different pathways the same. And so you've actually trained your brain to have its own dependable substance use disorder sans the substance. Because that one activity in your technology use has become the greatest neurochemical reward that's available to you that day, whether it's Um, an online casino or a pornographic uh, website, or whether it is a game that you can play, or even the wagering and risks that you can place into that game in particular that makes it more thrilling than just playing for free or just trying to burn a set number of minutes into it. So the the uncertainty and the, um, the attention that you give to how you get excited and the anticipation of some kind of reward is a huge part of the buildup and also the aftermath of that time spent on the device. Right, right. Um, You've worked with a lot of clinicians 
throughout the country. Um, and, and I'm wondering, what are some common mistakes that well-meaning clinicians who just don't have a lot of training in, in working with gambling disorder or inter- technology-based addictive behaviors, what are some common mistakes that, that you see that uh, clinicians make? Well, the first one that comes to mind actually blends our last two questions together is, you know, we have the the ICD-10, 11 community working on, do we have video game disorder as a mental health issue? And so our assumption of, no, it doesn't really matter because we've been treating this since the mid-1990s. We just didn't have a label that we could submit to insurances, but if this person has that problem, there's, you know, what's the diagnosis? What are we treating in terms of the written word on the treatment plan? But then what is the client coming to therapy for and hoping to see significant, meaningful, purposeful change in their life as the outcome of having met you and worked with you, their clinician, right? I'm coming to see you. This is what I hope will happen as the result of that decision. And a lot of times we're, we're in this box as clinicians, especially when we, re- we receive payments from insurance companies and things like that. So you run into this problem to a degree with gambling disorder because that's not a, a reimbursable diagnosis under a lot of insurance panels. So you're still stuck in that um, adjustment disorder is somehow a smarter diagnosis than gambling disorder which is sad, but also maybe a different topic uh, to tackle in a podcast like this. So that's the number one issue is getting hung up on our professional labels and losing time actually connecting with the client over their issue and their hopes for treatment. And then- let Let me, before you go on to the next one, let me just ask you on that. When somebody comes into treatment for gambling disorder, your experience, um, or comes into treatment, let me say that, and they present, do they generally walk in and say, Dr. Kaufman, I've got a problem with gambling. I need you to help me address it. Or do they come in and they, do they say, Dr. Kaufman, my life's falling apart. I'm depressed. My spouse is getting ready to leave me and I don't know what to do. And then lo and behold, you discover at some later point, um, maybe that session or maybe later sessions that there is a, underlying gambling issue? Gambling specifically is an issue that thrives in the mind of the client on their ability to be dishonest and manipulate other people. When they are focused on achieving recovery, they do not do that to their clinician. So if they have a good motivation to change that's better than the pre-contemplation stage and they're trying to figure something out, they're open to the idea that my life needs to be spent energy-wise in a different way. So if they come in with that mentality and also given who I am and how I'm marketed and, and what I'm known for in the field, the majority of my clients are very openly, obviously uh, willing to admit that they have a gambling issue and that's the, that's the genesis of our work together. If you are a, um, a counselor who's more of a generalist to what we try to do, so the anxiety, depression kind of route and relationship support and work satisfaction, life balance satisfaction kind of route, you might have to do some detective work and understand the warning signs. Um, I tell whenever I have a audience and we're talking about counselor development in the face of these kinds of problems, I share a story about I dropped the ball the very first time I could have ever counseled someone about gambling because that wasn't my specialty area back then. I hadn't started working with the Florida Council on Compulsive Gambling yet. I had a mother of two and she came in for counseling to parent them better. They were adjusting to some things terribly. Some behaviors were manifesting in school that were undesired. And there was a day where she missed her appointment. No warning, very last minute. And uh, I got her on the phone 
and said, hey, would you like to reschedule? And she said, I can, but it needs to be after next pay period because I'm not going to have enough money for the copay. Her copay was $5. And so I, I had some sympathy for that situation. And I talked with her a little bit, wrapped up the phone call, got her an appointment time that should line up with her having funds and talked with her about, you know, in the future, please feel free to come and we can work that out with the front desk, but I would prefer to see you as long as, you know, there is a plan for getting caught up, you know, in the, in the next appointment or something like that. And she agreed to that. But when I talked with her about it, she was talking about groceries and she was talking about light bills and she mentioned some scratch off tickets. It was right there. I could have noticed it. I could have asked the Libet questionnaire questions and found out if this is something that we need to explore more. And I didn't know. And so once I got on board with the Florida Council and I started doing their CEU trainings to get up to speed and, and add the basic levels of this knowledge to the, my Florida licensure so that I could begin uh, just grasping my role of directing this treatment program, that case has stayed with me my entire career since that, like, man, I didn't know. And so there's so many windows like that in all of our biopsychosocial assessments where money and financial pressures, but also family relationships. Who do we get along with? Who do we not? Why is there tension? Why are there cutoffs in those connections? You know, you have a person who mentions that they like going to the casino when we talk about their hobbies or their pastimes just as a, a bonding opportunity. And then we also can connect the dots and ask follow-up questions. Well, you say that that's one of your most fun things to do. You have a sense of community there, which thank you for sharing that with me. That's good for me to know. But also you have this, uh, this uncle or your oldest sibling. They haven't talked to you since 2005. And now I'm wondering, you know, is that because a bailout from them didn't get repaid? Uh, is there theft? All of the different things that spe are specific to treating gambling addiction, they're right there but you have to know what to ask and what you're looking for. Right. And one of the things that strikes me with that um, case that you just presented was the fact that it was scratch-off tickets. Oh, and yeah. how, how often do we see people getting scratch-off tickets? And we don't think anything about it because it's a dollar or $2 or whatever. Um, so we don't really process that as being a problem but when somebody's copay when they are making minimum wage or just above minimum wage a dollar or two dollar expense a couple of times a day or you know multiple times a week can really start to be problematic and then they start chasing chasing their losses is that yeah. the correct yeah. term i'm using that's the correct term yeah um so that's one of those mistakes, and, and I know I stopped you. I asked you what common mistakes were, and, and you identified that first one, um, but I really wanted to uh, dig into that one a little bit. And another part of that that you had shared with uh, me in a previous discussion was talking to someone on the gambling helpline who didn't realize that addict problems with gambling were was actually a mental health issue. Yeah, so uh, again, earlier in my career, just getting new with this treatment program and that helpline. And so I'm still thinking pretty concretely about what I'm doing at that stage in my development. And so I'm looking at what this person told me and I'm following my list of resources and making sure that I'm checking off all the right things that I would want this person to do. Uh, in the aftermath of what they're telling me they did with their gambling choices. And I asked, would you like to see a counselor? Is that something you'd be interested in scheduling? She said, what kind of counselor? And I think she was alluding to maybe a financial or you know career advice kind of counselor. And so I clarified that it was for mental health counseling. She's like, why do I need that? <laughs> and I said, well, because gambling addiction is a mental health issue. A lot of people benefit from 
doing counseling one-on-one with a trained professional and also adding in support groups to meet with people and have a sponsor. And she's like, oh, no, I'm not looking for anything like that. And uh, she said, uh, by the end of the call, she said, it just never occurred to me that this was a mental health problem. So I think a lot of people, because you know, they feel good at times and their emotional state might be connected to their gambling outcomes. So, you know, you lose and you feel bad, you win and you feel good. That doesn't seem like anything's broken inside you. And I mean, in a lot of ways, they're not wrong. I mean, that's what our brain is designed to do is to take that feedback from the world around us. When things are going well, we are supposed to, in general, feel good. And when they're not, those are the warning signs of get out of that situation. And then we get this bad feeling. And so I I have, that's just another person from years and years ago that I never will forget that conversation. It became very important for me as a counselor for what I'm thinking my clients or potential clients or uh, helpline consumers of services might be feeling as they listen to me uh, create recommendations and construct some kind of action plan for them with them. Which underscores what you said earlier that we need to, we need to ask because a lot of clients will come in and they don't realize that gambling disorder is, could be a mental health issue. So they may not even offer that up. And in our biopsychosocial assessment, I, don't think I've ever seen one that, you know, that just kind of came out of the hopper that ever asked about sex addiction, um, gambling addiction, even eating disorders is barely covered. It talks about changes in eating habits. Um, So we really do need to pursue this a little bit with people, especially now with the prevalence of technology in our life. It's almost unethical. Um, in, in some ways, not to ask about the impact of technology in people's lives. And that's such a simple change to our basic assessment approach as saying, what would you say your relationship with technology is uh, across the last few weeks? Uh, also, similarly, what's your relationship or can you list some things you find enjoyable? And then as a follow up, what would you say the nature of your connection to those activities would be? Sure. And if, if we need to create a Likert scale kind of approach, we can do that too. Um, healthy, questionable, problematic, concerning, you know, one, two, three, four, right there. Right. And you know, we can get our clients thinking that, you know, they might say, I'm on my smartphone six hours a day. And you know why I know that? Because Apple sends me a nice report every Sunday morning that confirms that that's true. You you know, when that first started, I was teaching an addictions class at GCU and I asked my students what they thought about it. And uh, in unanimous fashion, they all rejected it. I was like, really? As a counselor, when that popped up on my phone, I was like, that is so great. I'm getting feedback on what this phone means to me. And if I feel that feeling and, and I'm in a different spot, like I'm, I'm teaching this class and they're, they're grad students, they're in the midst of a lot of changes and they don't have control over all of them. And uh, so that, that feedback was threatening to them because, oh my gosh, 12 hours a day, ugh, I would never want people to know that. I didn't want to know that. And, and so when you start getting actual measured feedback based in reality, then you can, now you can do something instead of not really knowing how bad it is. And we're comfortable with that ignorance, you know, ignorance is bliss. That's a famous, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a famous line for a reason because it's so true. But if we're trying to accomplish things in life and that phone is becoming a barrier, then I, I view that we should welcome that feedback if you don't like it then change it. Kind of like when a student might be questioning their grade. If you don't like it, then change your approach to the assignment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So getting back to the, the original question, are there other common mistakes that you see generalist clinicians making um, just because they don't have training in working with gambling or gaming issues? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this one has kind of a 
a two-part thing to it because gambling and also just technology-based or video game-based process addiction, they don't function exactly the same, but it's the same principle. It's the addiction can't be decided based only on money for gambling, and it can't be determined based only on time invested with video games because those two measures are so relative that it really depends on the person and what it is they lose or are at risk of losing in the decision to consume that product. So for example, um, I'm in a situation where when I look at my video game habits, there might be across an entire seven day week, there might be 20 minute windows across the weekdays and maybe a one to two hour window on one of the days of the weekend where I could choose to consume a video game and play it and that will fit into what I expect myself to do and it will not bear a consequence. Whereas a college student could have five or six hours every day, believe it or not, where they could play that same video game and also experience zero consequences. Uh, but I do not have midterms and finals. So there may be a weekend where my schedule just opens up and I can play four hours on a Sunday with some friends across the country, whereas they need to pump the brakes on their normal routine and play fewer than 30 minutes today, honestly, because you have a very important life path determining grade coming up that will be decided based on what you decided to do today. Mm -hmm. and so it's that ability to compartmentalize and do the thing that makes you the best version of yourself and let the fun activities fit naturally into place instead of always forcing the instant fun and pretending that your own expectations for yourself can always be disregarded uh, in preference for the fun. And also with money, your income, and we alluded to this with the $5 copay, your income and your sources of financial uh, ability, your socioeconomic status determine the difference between what a $1,000 loss that day feels like versus a $100 or a $45 loss that day feels like. So what can you absorb? And if you have a healthy connection with this game, what is your disposable income that you are free to designate for acts of fun, similar to the decision I have to make when I'm deciding about my family going to see a movie or going out to a restaurant to eat, that there's a dollar amount where that can fit into our life and cause no consequences. And people who gamble can do this, but they're not necessarily the people who score high on scales like the South Oaks gambling screen or are coming to treatment because they're identifying a gambling issue exists. Right, right. Um, and as you're talking, it brought to mind a, a friend of mine from many, many years ago who his life and his marriage ended up breaking up um, because of a game called World of Warcraft. Mm. And looking back at that, one of the things that I think was challenging to their therapist was what's causing what because he used the game to escape a adversarial or unhappy situation at home and that just made the relationship worse so it was feeding off you know just like a lot of addictions do but since it was a game and this was yeah, 20 some odd years ago. Um, since it was a game, I, I don't think it got the attention that it needed in order to help him um, compartmentalize, as you put it. Um, and, you know, that ended up becoming a big problem for them. But um, so let's go on to, uh, I know we're running close to short of time. Uh, what strategies, if you're talking to a group of 100 generalist counselors, what strategies might be helpful for them to know in order to help get people off on the right foot, if you will, um, in addressing 
technology-based addictive behaviors in a culture that is pretty much chained to technology. I mean, we can't tell people, well, just get rid of your computer. You know, it's it's that easy because it's not. You know, it's a little bit more creative of a process when you have to get people to disconnect with something society tells them they need to be very involved with. So parallel process-wise, it's the same as with gambling addiction is how do you get a person used to using money this way in a society that tells you so much of your value and your capability is based on what money you have and how you use it. So how do you get them to unplug from that unhealthy relationship and redefine that relationship. And and we see that with technology too, is even though we have to use technology to clear out our work emails and complete things in Excel and Word for reports or for things we're expected to turn in, um, there is a different process between using a computer device for completing one of those tasks than there is signing into World of Warcraft. So for example, one thing that I have done, which was a, it was a purposeful decision for me is my private practice and all the things I do for counseling, those computers do not have the MMORPG that my dissertation research was completed on, which is Star Wars The Old Republic, those devices don't have that game installed, right? My Microsoft Surface and, um, you know, my work laptop, they don't have that game on there. So can I play this game on this device? Are these devices triggers for this idea that I could be playing right now? Um, I've done my best to create a firm no. And so one thing that is found in research, particularly among college students and uh, video game uh, diversion or procrastination is that that's the tough thing is I need to create this PowerPoint presentation for tomorrow's class or write this seven page research paper, go into my school's academic library and collect seven resources for tomorrow. And, but World of Warcraft is also right there on my taskbar at the bottom of the screen. So do I click Word and type for the next two and a half hours? Or do I play World of Warcraft for the next two, two and a half hours and, and try and fit, uh, you know, fit in the fun later? And it's until you train yourself to accept that you can do the tough work first, it's not something that we naturally do as a species, it seems, or maybe as a society. I don't know whether our genetics or whether our reinforced behaviors or our drives are shaped which way, or if it's even important to delineate. So it's, it's just important to realize that you can do the other things expected of you before you get stuck in the, in the fun zone with that instant gratification and losing track of time, losing sleep and uh, putting yourself behind the eight ball. So two things I hear from that are, number one, helping clients actually look at their time and and think of of time in terms of a commodity and how much of their time can they spend on this, that, or the other and really create a schedule so they can see where their time, their slots are that they could engage in something if they are going to try to do controlled use sort of sort of thing but also when there are times that they have to be doing something else if they can separate the game or the gambling or whatever it is from that activity so don't have it on your work computers and you know i've for a long time i had a home office and i found that it was really hard for me to stop work And because the computer was there, there was always something else that had to be done, some other email that had to be checked. And it was exhausting. And I found myself getting really burnt out because I was not able to teach myself to to just not turn on the computer. Um, So I've, I've gotten to the point where I have, I leave work at work and I have home at home and that helps me separate have some temporal separation between the two. Um, Another thing we talked about is the fact that there are apps out there 
that people can install on their computers, on their mobile devices to that will alert a helpful third party that you're going to a, a website that you're not supposed to. Yes, um, there are blocking programs for gambling behaviors. And also, of course, there are some for pornography and other kinds of things like that. But you can use, you can pay for a subscription with GamBlock and that will install into your computer and help you to be able to automatically have gambling opportunities censored out of your web browsing life. And that can be useful. And you can also use the technique of having someone who knows 100% that their job is to stop you whenever you lose your mind and, and, and swear you need the password to unlock that program. So you need to find someone in your life you can trust to be the tough guy on you. Because in this moment, when you're thinking with a mindset on recovery, you told me not to give in to my future self who wants to relapse. So it's really important to talk with your clients about that because these programs do have an administrative password that you program in. And so if you know the password, then you can subvert your own good intentions that you have in this moment. So that's one thing. Uh, as far as video games, I don't know of any program that will block games out of your computer or your smartphone. Um, a lot of the allure of such great technology these days is their graphics cards and their ability to provide fun in the face of being such a robust tool for uh, productivity. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit tougher, but there are apps that I've found that can help you shift towards a productive bent. Um, I actually published a reflective practice article about a year or so ago where I share my story of what turned my dissertation around, and that was using apps such as Swipes and Habitica, which are two apps that are about increasing your productivity and giving you points or some kind of feedback. So Swipes gives you a streak of how many days in a row you've completed everything you put in your list. And I put one thing in my list, which is make your dissertation better, or it was just called daily progress. And so that, that could be writing two sentences, that could be finding one journal article, that could be submitting my packet to the IRB, that could be patiently waiting for the IRB for two weeks and uh, getting that streak up. Because just like with recovery, one day at a time, it makes every day meaningful. And that's so much more powerful than I'm never doing this again the rest of your life. You never get to enjoy that goal until you're gone. And then I would argue you still aren't enjoying that goal. Uh, and then that goes into what you believe about afterlife existence and stuff. But And that's a whole nother podcast. Of course. Yes. If you want me back to talk about that, uh, yes. Uh, but I think that we can use apps for our benefit to keep track of our progress, to give us points on things we do in life. One of the big draws of video games is it makes people feel effective and worthwhile in a way that they may not feel at their work. So you're armed with your, your swords and your magic and you're changing the fate of the realm. And when you log out, you answered 112 emails today, made copies, and you presented things for 20 minutes and you're not sure the audience was listening because they were all looking at their smartphones. And so one of those feels like you impacted your reality of that moment. And the other one just feels like the daily, daily gr grind uh, with maybe a meaningless quality to it. And so, you know, that's me trying to share some empathic thought about why people would play these games so much. But I would still encourage everyone to have compassion at the self level and realize that you can't, there's always going to be another email that you need to answer. And there will be a time to do that, that our devices remind us in a lot of ways of how behind we are when they could be a tool that we integrate in a healthy way and realize that it's just reminding me, I'll get to it next time it's time for work. And and now we have less of a need to cope because the thought process behind what that alert means is healthier. 
So I, I just want to impart on people that these devices can be a tool for good, but that has to do with how much we hold on to our true self when we're using them. Awesome. Well, I like that place to wrap this up. That's uh, a very uh, mindful way of approaching the use of technology. Is there anything else that, that you feel you want to add to this, Dr. Kaufman? I just hope everyone uh, was able to enjoy this opportunity to look at a few addictions that I certainly didn't learn very much about at all at the time when I was a master's student. And I think as the world changes, our curriculum will change and you know, our future students do get to probably have more conversations about these things. But whenever you get a client who has an issue that you, you might not be so familiar with because it goes beyond that DSM-5 thinking process, I would just encourage everyone to have that curiosity and listen. Because if you can over time pick up a few things that shows that video game addicted client that I've heard this before and I remember that we were, you know, that I learned this. And so just sharing a word or sharing an acronym when they mention it and being able to connect on that can build so much rapport in a world that is, that is proving to be reliably, reliably rejecting their, their way of expressing themselves. That a lot of times they are struggling with that connection, loving something that the world deems as childish or worthless. And as a counselor, we are the one person in their life that we know of uh, often that has the ability to listen and reflect and probe and have empathy towards people regardless of their circumstance. And I think that if we can do that, even with things that we're trying ourselves to understand, we can build a relationship and that becomes an asset far more valuable than just the, the total body of knowledge we understand by reading our books and doing our continuing education. Awesome. Well, as usual, I learned things from you again today about gambling and gaming disorder. And I really want to thank you for being with me today, Dr. Kaufman. And hopefully we can do this again, you know, in short order. Oh, absolutely. I would be up for any topic. Thanks, Dr. Snipes, for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode.